So if you have your your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to, to grab it uh, and to, to turn to uh, the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, we've been working our way together through this, this letter of the Apostle Paul. We've said that it's a letter that was written by Paul, the great apostle, at the end of his life. And it was written to a young pastor in the city of Ephesus who was struggling in his ministry, wondering what it looks like to follow Jesus. And, and so this they're called part of the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters of Paul uh, to strengthen the, this young church in Ephesus. Um, now, last week we looked at uh, the beginning of our this section where where Paul was talking about the essentially the law of God. What does the law require? How do Christians use the law? And in the verses we're going to be looking at today, verse 12 to 17, which is also there in your bulletin on page 7, um, that, that here Paul launches into the, this explanation of the good news of Christianity. And, and he applies it to himself, to others, to the world. And so I'll, I'll read this together. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Um, Father, we, we need you today to open our hearts. Lord, illuminate our understanding. Give grace to us to have faith today. Give grace for us to grow in our love. Lord, please correct anything that I would be tempted to say that doesn't reflect the truth of this passage. Um, please have mercy on us for the sake of your son, Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> so some of you might have heard that the jokes of you might be a redneck if. There, there's a comedian, Jeff Foxworthy, who's known for the you might be a redneck if jokes. And, and here are a few, just in case you, you're not familiar, that, that you might be a redneck if you cut your grass and find your car. Or you might be a redneck if someone comes to your door every day thinking that you're having a yard sale. Or you might be a redneck if your lawn furniture used to be your living room furniture. And you, you could keep going. There, there's basically an infinite supply of these redneck jokes. And if you think about it, it's because even though all rednecks are not the same, that there are attributes of a true redneck that you can tell what a true redneck looks like 
And that's why the jokes are funny, and that's why we, we laugh when we hear them. But in a similar way, you could say that there are attributes of a true Christian. What does a true Christian look like? What is the experience of a true Christian? And it's not that all true Christian experience is exactly the same, that we're all individuals, we have unique experiences, but there are commonalities. You can describe what the true Christian experience looks like. And that's actually what the Apostle Paul is hinting at in verse 16, where he talks about his own life, his own conversion, being a pattern for those who would believe in Christ for eternal life. You want to know what does true Christian experience look like? Well, look at the Apostle Paul. Or you could say, you might be a true Christian if your experience mirrors that of the Apostle Paul in certain ways. And so let's look at that, how our experience as believers should mirror the experience of Paul here. And so first, you might be a true Christian if you understand the mission of Christ, the, the mission of Christ. And so look in your Bible at verse 15. You see the mission of Christ there. He says that the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, I find that in the, the present world, there is a lot of confusion about the mission of Jesus. Some people think that the mission of Jesus was primarily to be a good moral example. And he was a good moral example, the ultimate moral example. But sometimes people will think that, that the mission of Jesus was to come and show us what love looks like, what sacrifice looks like, what it looks like to, to live as a true child of God. And that is the extent of his mission. Of course, as I said, Jesus is a good moral example, but that's not the very heart of his mission. It's because if you look at our text here in verse 15, it's saying that, that the mission of Jesus, the central purpose for his coming into the world, was to save sinners. That it was this great rescue mission of Jesus. Now, some of you may have seen a, a movie uh, that came out, I think it was 2008, but the movie was called Taken, um, starring Liam Neeson. And, and it's this, this man who was a former CIA agent whose daughter is kidnapped by terrorists. And so he goes on this relentless mission to seek out his daughter, to find her, to bring her back. That he is definitely an example of someone who cares about his child, who is a faithful agent seeking what is good. But his mission is to rescue his daughter, to rescue the person who is lost. And that's the same with Jesus, that he is on a relentless mission to seek out sinners, to seek those who are lost in himself and themselves, the lost sheep of Israel. And so again, we could say that you might be a true Christian if you understand the mission of Christ to save sinners. But then second... You might be a true Christian if you understand the, uh, that it is actually Jesus coming not just to save sinners generally, but you sense your own need 
for Christ. You, you might be a true Christian if you see your own need for Christ. Look in your Bible again at, at verse 15. He says that the saint is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, of whom I am the foremost. And so this is where we could say that it's not enough simply to understand the mission of Jesus intellectually. To say, yes, Jesus came, he died, he rose again, he came to rescue sinners. But it is also crucial to see the bearing of that life and death on our own lives, that we are sinners who need Jesus. Um, and I, I met a woman recently, and um, we were started to talk, and um, I was asking her about her assurance of eternal life. And she was saying, yeah, I have assurance. I know that if I were to die, I would be with God. And so I was saying, well, if you came before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And, and she was saying, well, I would say that I've been a good person. I've tried really hard. I've, I've, I've worked hard. And so as we continued to talk, um, it, it turns out that she was raised Roman Catholic. She, and I asked her, what do you believe about Jesus? And she said, yeah, I believe that Jesus lived. He died. He, he rose again. And, and so I said, well, does Jesus play a role at all in the final day? When you stand before God on the last day, does Jesus and his work factor at all? And so we ended up then having a very nice conversation about, she said, yeah, I think that, that Jesus is important. But I think that, that her understanding, at least that, that initial understanding, is common for a lot of people who profess faith in God. That they would say, in one sense, intellectually, yes, Jesus came. He came to rescue sinners. He came to die on the cross. That's one part of their, of their understanding. But then in a disconnected part of their understanding, it's, well, if I came before God and God said, why should I let you into heaven? I would say, it's because I've been a good person, because I've tried really hard. I've, I've followed all of the rules. And what's happening is that, is that people so often can put themselves in the category of the good people, the people who aren't sinners, the people who don't need rescuing. But they recognize, yes, there are bad people out there in the world who need a savior, who need to be rescued, but it's not me. I'm not that person. But as we look at the experience of the Apostle Paul, as we look at his witness here in our text, that he says, I am the chief of sinners. I am the foremost of sinners. Yes, Jesus came to rescue sinners, but that is me. It's not just other people. Yes, it is other people. But, but first and foremost, this is something I need in my life. And that's something that we even ask people when they join Hope Church. We have membership vows. And the first of the membership vows is, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope save in his sovereign mercy? And that can be such a hard thing to admit to say that I am a sinner, that I'm without hope in myself. But that's where the good news is, is that if, if that is you, if you are a sinner in yourself, justly deserving God's displeasure, then that means that Jesus came on a rescue mission to seek and to save you, that you are part of the people whom Jesus came to save. And that is amazing news. 
So again, you, you might be a true Christian if you sense your need for Christ. But then third, you might be a true Christian if you have experienced the grace of Christ in your life. And look at verse 4. We see this experience of the grace of Christ. He says that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so as we said, it's not enough simply to have intellectual knowledge of the mission of Jesus. He came to rescue sinners. We also need to see that we are sinners ourselves, that we need rescue. But then the, the third part of it is, is, is not just to say, well, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, but then is actually to experience that abundant grace of God poured out in your life, not just someone else's life, but actually in your life. And, and grace is ultimately this unmerited favor of God poured out on us freely, as it says, overflowing for us. And look at how it overflows in verse 14. He says that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith. That, that faith then is part of the overflow of the grace of God in our lives. And so you, you think about your own life. Do you have faith? Do you trust in Jesus for salvation? Then what we're told in Scripture is that that faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. That's Paul in Ephesians 2.8. That even faith itself is a gift of grace. It is an overflow of grace in your life because God is the one who caused you to be born again brought you from death to life. God is the one who gave you eyes to see. God is the one who gave you the opportunity to hear the gospel. God is the one who gave you the ability to respond, to trust, that what do we have that we have not received? And if we have faith that we have received that as a gift of grace, this overflow in our life. And even today, if you look at your own life and you say, I'm not sure if I have faith, but you desire faith on some level, that desire is a gift of grace and that you can pray to God, Lord, give me faith if I don't have it. Lord, if I have faith and even the seed form, strengthen my faith. And even if I have strong faith, it could be stronger. Lord, strengthen my faith, knowing that all along that the prayer itself, the faith itself is all a gift, all of grace. But then look at what else is of grace in verse 14. He says that, that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so it's both faith and love that flow out of grace. Because we know that, that our duty as believers is to, to love God, heart, soul, mind, strength. Our duty is to love our, our neighbor as ourselves, not as a way to earn our salvation, but as those who have received salvation by grace. And that if we see any kind of love flowing out from us to our neighbor, to God, that we say, that love is not of myself. It's, it's not that I'm just a good person who's well this up in myself, but this is, it is the, the Lord Jesus who has strengthened me. It's the Lord who has worked this in me. Or as it says in Galatians 5, 6, that it is faith working through love. And if faith itself is a gift, that means the love is a gift as well. 
And then you go to the same thing. Lord, help me to love others more. Give me more grace to love you, to love others, to have this truly flow out in my experience of you, that I don't want just a knowledge of you in my head, but I want you in my heart, in my life, in my knowledge on a deeper level. And again, you might be a true Christian if you have experienced the grace of Christ. But then fourth and finally, you might be a true Christian if you respond to Christ with worship and praise. And that's what you see Paul doing in verse 17. He says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I love this, how, how Paul is he's reflecting on the mission of Jesus that he came to seek and to save the lost, to save sinners. He reflects on his own sin. I am the chief of sinners. That means Jesus came for me. He reflects on this superabundance of grace in his life, that I have experienced grace that has welled up into faith and to, and to love. And then it's all of the Lord. It's all a gift. And then he interrupts himself that he can't control himself. And he breaks the flow of his letter to Timothy by this doxology, by this song of praise, pouring himself out to God, which is just such an interesting example of, of, the, of when we're really moved in our own hearts to, to worship God, that sometimes it just spontaneously comes out. You're talking to someone and you're just overwhelmed by the, the beauty and the glory of God and how amazing his grace is in your life. And you have to just break into praise. People might think you're weird. But again, you, you're like the Apostle Paul here in our text. And look at all that he says about God, the, the object of his praise here. He says that God is the king, that he is the Lord, he's the master, he's the one who, who rules and, and governs and protects and, and subdues for his own glory. And therefore we know because he's the king, we are to submit to his rule, his law, his purpose in our life and all things. But also this God is the king immortal. The, well, sorry, the king of ages first. It says that the king of ages, which really has to do with him being the king eternal. And you think, what does it mean for God to be eternal? It's, it's not just that God sees the, the past and that he sees the future, but as theologians point out that we know from Scripture that God actually stands outside of time itself, that he's in no way bounded or restricted by time, that he sees all of reality as an eternal present, um, not just past and future, but always now for God. And therefore, because he's not bounded in any, any way by time, that he is completely sovereign over time and all times, uh, that we can trust his plan. You can trust his plan for your life. You can trust his plan for the world because he is the God of ages. But then also he is the God who is king immortal, that he's never going to change. He's, he's never going to die. He's never going to wear out. It says in scripture that, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that doesn't mean that he's static, but it means that, that he is active in the most ultimate way that we can trust him, that he really can be the rock of our foundation, the, 
the rock of our salvation, that we can rely on him in everything that we face. But then also we see that, that this God is the king invisible. As we read in scripture that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Or as we say with the kids in the, the kids' catechism that we've been using in Sunday school, we ask the question, what is God? And the answer is God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. And the point is, is that God is not restricted to one place, one locality, one body. He's, he's not restricted in time because he's eternal, but he's also not restricted in space because he is invisible. And that means that God can be with us right now, today. He can be with believers all around the world. He's in no way restricted, that he is here with us. And that means that we can depend on him. We can rely on him. He'll always be there. Even if no one else is, he is with you because he is the God invisible. But then finally, we see that this God is the only God, the only king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That he's not just one contender among many, but he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one who is and the one who is to come. He is the rock of our salvation. And there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. He is the Lord. And so when we think about this, it's, it's a systematic theology, but it's far more than that. It's not theology, it's doxology, it's praise, it's, it's worship. So he, he says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is this honor, this glory. That's, it's the only reasonable, the only rational responses of creatures to a holy God. And so as we wrap up today, we can reflect on our lives, we can reflect on our world. Um, it's been a difficult year and a half for our world. It's been a difficult year and a half for our church as a small church plant navigating a, a pandemic. Um, many of you have had your own struggles and, and difficulties in various ways. Uh, but as we look here at the response of Paul to God, that, that his first response, the, 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 the most important response to the grace of God and the salvation is worship and praise. And that's what we're doing right now. That's why we're here together in this room. We're doing together here the most important thing that Hope Church can do, the very center of our life, which is to respond to the grace of God in worship and to do that together. That worship is the most important thing that humans can do on earth because that is why we were created. And when we gather, when we, when we flow from this knowledge to this experience of God to praise and worship of God, that is what we're going to be doing for all eternity, that, that responding to God, knowing more of him and then worshiping is the most glorious thing we can do. It, it's the, what brings the most joy in the end, the most happiness. And that is what for all eternity we can grow in deeper and deeper in love with God, deeper and deeper in knowledge of God. That is in your future if you're in Christ. That's in, in my future, that it never gets old. It never 
dries out. It's always fresh. It's always new every morning. And part of our worship today, then, is, is coming to this meal together. That together we remember the mission of Jesus. That you might be a true Christian if you remember the true mission of Christ, that he came to die, to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins, to, to pour out his life. And we come to this remembering not only his mission, but our need for his mission, that, that we are the people. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, that it wasn't for other people, but it was for you who received this meal. We come to this remembering the grace of God, that we receive this as a gift. This is a gift that God offers to us, not a work that we're doing for God. That this experiencing the juice on your tongue, the, the bread going into your stomach, reminds you of the experience of grace, that that is a real tactile experience in your, in your mouth, in your body, becoming part of who you are physically, but your experience of the grace of God is, is, is even more real than that, that it's, it's Christ's life becoming your life and, and him flowing out from you this love and this, this faith. And then finally, we, we said that the response is praise, that we come to this as our act of, of worship, responding to what Jesus has done for us, saying, Lord, this is, this is worship. This is the heart of of why we're here, why Jesus came in our occupation for all of time and all of history to worship our 